Creative Elite Arts Company, located in Chicago, Illinois, and Dallas, Texas. We're your one-stop shop for everything art. We teach all the genres of dance, instrumental, and vocal music, modeling, culinary arts, drums and drill, and so much more. Check out our website at creativeelitesartcompany.com. Like and follow us on social media outlets or call us today. 312-756-9647. Join us in our mission to change the world one child at a time. Creative Elite Arts Company. Let the show begin. Damn, y'all feel it? This is the Finesse Media Podcast, Season 3. Check it out. The number one show focusing on HBCU news. Hey. With guests, entertainment, Ladies and, and surprise co-hosts. You put me in an awkward situation. Now, here is your host, Ken Finesse Media. goodness i can't tell you each and every time i hear that explosion it lets me know that we're ready for something brand new and welcome back welcome to another episode of finesse media podcast season three i'm your host ken finesse media bringing you something brand new again on this episode this week y'all we got a great guest a great finesse that's coming on and this Vanessa, y'all, it's certainly dear to me. For those that know, I'm a member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. I pledge at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, the Gangsta Beta Theta Chapter, uh, spring 2007. So to have the first international vice president of Phi Beta Sigma to join me on this episode is truly, truly humbling and exciting because I can speak with this man about real Sigma issues and things that I love about Sigma, and we'll tap into the things that he has done in Sigma as he has been the first international vice president uh, for almost a year now. But right now he is still running, and he is still aiming to get to the top, so he is currently running for the international uh, presidency of Phi Beta Sigma. So Chris Ray will be joining uh, us later on in this episode. So Keep it locked. And, again, if you're just tuned in for the first time on Finesse Media Podcast, make sure you subscribe to all of our social media platforms. We're at Finesse Media on all social media platforms. That's Twitter, Facebook, uh, and also Instagram. And make sure you're subscribed to our YouTube page. So to see this whole circus in a visual form, make sure you go to YouTube uh, and search the Finesse Media Podcast and click the bell so you'll be notified when new episodes are released. And as you know, and if you did know, each and every week on the Finesse Media Podcast, I spotlight HBCUs. HBCUs. So as I mentioned before, I am an alumni from a historically black college, the University of Arkansas at Five Bluff, and every week I like to talk to other HBCU alums or current students that attended or attend an HBCU, historically black college or university, for those that don't know. And this week, our HBCU of the week is Howard University. So as I mentioned to you before, Phi Beta Sigma was also founded at the Howard University uh, campus on the campus of Howard University in 1914 um, in January the 9th. So I'm so happy to have an alumni 
uh, from that university, Licious, that's going to be giving me his insight, his experience about the HBCU experience at Howard University. So, again, y'all, we got a jam-packed show. HUDC is all over us this episode. So let's get into it. It's time for the HBCU. Historically black colleges and universities commonly called HBCUs are defined by the Higher Education Act of 1965 as any historically black college or university that was established prior to 1964 whose principle was and is the education of black Americans and that is accredited by a nationally recognized accrediting agency or association determined by the Secretary of Education. It's now time for the Finesse Media Podcast, HBCU of the Week. I say it every week. It's my favorite part of the show before we get into our uh, exclusive conversation with our special guest. It's my favorite part of the show. I get to highlight an HBCU and also talk to someone who attended the university. So without further ado, welcome to the Finesse Media Podcast, season three for the first time. Licious, repping Howard University. What's up, brother? What's up, man? <laughs> Licious, dude. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Listen, thank you for tapping in and joining us on this episode to wrap your school, the real HU. I know Hampton folks out there listening, but I'm going to say without even being attached to either school, I'm going to say Howard University is the real HU. So, listen, Ogaloo, what's up, brother, man? Thanks for, for tapping in. Let our listeners know, uh, when did you attend Howard University? So, I attended Howard from... 2012 to 2015. Um, so, yeah, I was at Howard for like three years because I did like a year at UDC before going to Howard. Yep. That's cool. That's cool. So, at Howard University, how was, you know, what was your major? Before I ask you about your experience there, what was your major? Um, I was a communications major. That was radio, TV, and film. Now it's changed. But back when I was there, it was radio, TV, and film. It was all in one program. And my concentration was audio projection, and my minor was English. That's super amazing. And being at Howard University, like, that's the mecca of HBCU. Again, I'm going to say that. You know, Howard yeah. is, is, is known for their crazy homecomings and for their rich history and tradition. And, of course, for yeah. being the birth uh, and the mother, um, you know, the mother stone for all or most of the Divine Nine, you know, Greek letter, uh, black, right. Greek, black Greek letter organization. So how was that experience, uh, Licious, being on campus, you know, a, a part of such a, a rich history? It was amazing. It was wonderful. You know, I think that one of the most beautiful things about Howard and pretty much like all HBCUs is the fact that it's a melting pot for black people. Mm. You get what I'm saying? Like you could literally see Mm -hmm. black people from all over the world, which was really amazing. You know, you get to see all of the different cultures and different traditions. Like you get to really understand that, you know, black, blackness is not just one thing. Like, you know, the the blackness is, is something that's that's all over the world. You know what I'm saying? Like there's different like different aspects of black culture and just being able I remember something that happened where I think it was um, Dr. Carr who was saying that, 
you can be on the yard at Howard, and literally just being on the yard, you feel like you have this experience. You can definitely see black people from all over the world being represented at Howard. I think, to me, that was one of the most amazing things, you know, um, because for me, being Nigerian and everything, it was really amazing to, like, to go to Howard and, and to, like, really see Nigerians and other people as well and just different aspects of the culture being represented. I think it was just really amazing, something that you would never find, um, you know, anywhere else. And, 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 you know, the other thing that people don't realize, too, is, like, Howard makes you very proud of, of who you are and understanding mm, your roots mm-hmm. and, and your culture and that sort of thing. And, in fact, I I was even more prouder to be African and Nigerian when I went to Howard because it was like there was something about this emphasis on our, you know, our African roots and that sort of thing. Like, you know, it was something that you – it wasn't like a foreign concept, you know what I mean? Like, and I think that was something that was kind of very unique where people people walked around and, and, and they kind of knew that. I mean, I had friends who were talking about, well, you know, I'm 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 half there, so I'm twenty three percent this, that and the third. And it was just it was just crazy to see that for me at Howard and I think um just understanding black culture and understanding even what it means to be to be black in America and just the history and everything and how we got to this place that we're at right now I think is so incredible. Um one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had and you know, people always ask me like did you, um, how did you, how did you get to Howard? And I was like, well, you know, Howard wasn't really like one of the schools I wanted to go to. Like Howard was a school that my father was like, it was between Howard and Morgan State at the time, you know? And one of my uncles was a professor at Morgan State. And he, and so I got accepted when I applied. And, but then it came down to, well, should I go to Morgan State or should I go to Howard? And my father was like, well, Howard is a better school. I didn't really understand like, you know, the magnitude of Howard and the significance of it. Like, it was just, okay, my dad was like, that's a better school, so let's go there. So <laughs> that was how I ended up at Howard. And then I got there that was like, thank you, God, <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> it, it was it was a great um, choice. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's been amazing. It's It's been wonderful, even me right now with what I do as a filmmaker, like I'm so grateful that I went to Howard because aside from just the networking opportunities that you get from Howard, it's just, again, being able to understand and it makes me a better um, create creative, you know, being able to like come up with narratives that really reflect that experience, you know, but even more so being very mindful to, to have a global perspective as well. So I could talk about blackness from like different aspects of the culture, you know, and, and that was something that Howard did. You know, because at Howard, you took mm. classes, like, in, in African studies, you took classes, in African American studies, you took classes, you know what I'm saying? Like, so you, there was, because a lot of times, you know, like, when you talk about, you know, um, the African American history or, you know, how we, you know, how black people got to America, a lot of times there's this cut off from, like, slavery, you know? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. there was there was life before that. It was, it was, that's not the beginning of black people, you get what I'm saying? So that how it made me understand that even more, you know what I'm saying? And being able to include that, um, it, it just made me the man I am and even just my, my help me as a creative, you know what I'm saying? Like making sure that Absolutely. whatever I do, I'm, I'm reflecting, you know, that, that global black experience. You know? 
Mm. And just really going back into that black experience, growing up, and yeah. you mentioned, you know, you being Nigerian, but growing up yeah. in D.C., Washington, where you're, where you're from, how was that? Was it in your face? Were you privy to the black experience, or did you come to discover HBCUs later on in life? Um, I think for me, like, you know, we were, were all like, like we, so D.C. is home, but like we always, like Nigeria is always, is like that's originally home. You get what I'm saying? So, Mm-hmm. We didn't really like that. We always looked at it that way, and I think, um, I think it was at Howard that she really. Because again, one of the things to understand is like my family, all of us being 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 all you know originally from Nigeria and everything. We always looked at it that way. So I, I don't think we mm-hmm. and and you know if you've ever been outside of the United States or to to any of the African countries, well, I can't speak for other African countries. I can only speak for Nigeria, right? So, because um, that's what I know, right? A lot of times, but like, within, within that, you don't really look at the emphasis there is really ethnicity, right? So, because mm. it's all black people. So, but what the emphasis is, is, is ethnicity. There's not racism, so to speak, because there's more, there's predominantly more black people than there is white people. So ethnicity was kind of like the emphasis, you know, um, so there was really, really an emphasis on racism until then you get, you get to Howard and for being here and then you understand that relationship, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, well, I wasn't even like really looking into that, but then when you, when I got to Howard, there was a lot of conversation around that and not just conversations around race, but even conversations around ethnicity as well, because now within the black culture, there's this need for unity and us understanding each other and coming together more so than ever before. So I didn't really mm-hmm. like was paying attention to those things again, to be quite honest with you, because those weren't things that we talked about in the house. You know what I mean? Like those weren't things that were emphasized. I mean, I remember coming back home one time from, this was back when I was in UDC and I came home and at UDC we had watched this, like it was a video of like, um, it, was a, it was based on race, and they were really talking about how white people try to use science to say that, you know, whites were, like, like superior to black people, essentially. And, like, the whole point of that whole documentary was that it was all a lie. There's really no scientific evidence to say that white people were, were you know, superior to black people, but that mm-hmm. this whole lie, this whole plot to use science to try to prove that and literally they were saying back at that time the government there's a there's a man who did the the whole study and he came up came up with results and saying well there's nothing there's no difference there's no science saying that white people were better in any way shape or form but then he was threatened like they basically told him that you had to go back and say that based on your findings that scientifically white people were better right so it was that, and I remember watching that for the first time in my life. When I came home, I was like, "Dad, you can you you can't you won't believe what I what we watched school today." Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was so mind blowing. Like, I didn't understand that. Like, literally, that this was something that was in existence. You get what I'm saying? And well, my dad's response to it was like, "Oh, that's crazy." Like, but that was that was it. Like, there, there was no conversation beyond that. You know what I mean? Um, and I mm-hmm. wanted to have more conversation. I want to talk more about it and to see 
more of how that even applies to society today and, and life in general. And so, again, it wasn't so much of a conversation, but then when you went to Howard, I think that was kind of like the kind of like the um, the beginning of it for me. I used to say that the seeds were were kind of sown at UDC, and then mm-hmm. when I went to Howard, it was, was like the, 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 the germination of it, if you will, like understanding mm-hmm. more of what the black experience is, you know what I'm saying, and um, and being more conscious of it, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And being on campus, just, I know for me, when I went to the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, being from Chicago, initially I thought, yeah. where the hell am I at? Because it was 30 yeah. South. It was a whole nother culture. It was literally a culture shock. But at some point yeah. I realized this was the moment uh, or this was the place I should be. Do you recall that moment where you were now on campus at Howard University as a student where mm-hmm. you had realized that you made the right decision that this was the right school for you? Yeah, so, again, I think for me it was more of a of a gradual process, you okay. know? Okay. Yeah, because, like I told you, you know, me going to Howard wasn't, wasn't that, oh, my God, Howard is an HBCU. Oh, my God. I didn't – it was no – talk about HBCUs, that wasn't the thing. Like, you know, like there were a lot of there was a lot of talk about Ivy League schools, you know what I mean? Like your Princeton's and your Yale's and those types of schools. Like that was what was really emphasized. But you didn't it wasn't so much talk about HBCUs. So I didn't like really pay attention to that, right? But it was just mm-hmm. because my dad said it was it was a it was a better school. <laughs> right, it's where you should go. Right. That was it. Yeah. So I went there and then to me, it was like it was just another school to go. And at the time, again, I, I, I always like to go back to being Nigerian because it, it I think it, it really shaped who I am, and I think people need to understand that. Um, so when I went to Howard, the, the joke is if you're Nigerian or African, um, that if you're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, you might as well consider yourself a disgrace to the family, right? So that was mm-hmm. like the joke within the culture. I've heard right? that. So, they put a lot of pressure on you. It, it, exactly. in Nigeria culture, there's a lot of pressure there. I have many friends that have said the same thing, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, there is that pressure. You're absolutely pressure. correct. It's a lot of pressure. So I wanted to be a doctor, right, because that's like what everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know what I'm saying, like if you <laughs> – that's it. So I was like, okay, well, uh-huh. but I'm so glad that I went to Howard when I did. In fact, I'm glad that I went to UDC first because it was at UDC that, like I told you, the seeds were sown. And I, I was able to have one of the most, one of the, the hardest conversations I ever had with my parents was like telling them that I wasn't going to be a doctor anymore, that I wanted to go into like communications. My father was so upset. Like, <laughs> I'd never like, what, are you, what are you talking um, about, literally? What are you going to be talking right? about? <laughs> So then I went to Howard the time I did, and I was so glad because by the time I went to Howard, because a lot of people don't realize I didn't I didn't go to Howard like I didn't go to college straight straight out of like high school, you know what I mean? Like I was like I just was like I'm not I'm I'm gonna hang around for like a little bit, but like three years went by and I didn't go to college. I was just working, you know what I mean? Uh, because again, I had this thing in my head. I wanted to go because. It was so much talk about Ivy League schools, Ivy League schools. You wanted to go to one of those because mm-hmm. I wanted to be a doctor, right? It was it was um it was Hopkins, you know, and 
over there in Baltimore. <laughs> so I was like, all right, this is where we go. And then I had that whole epiphany, you know. I had that whole epiphany when I was, I was like, I went to UDC, and I remember the moment I was like, all right, cool. Let me not, let me not just lie to myself. Like, this is not what I want to do. Like, I want to do something else. And then once that happened, I was able to go to Howard. Like, all of my credits, I think all of them transferred to Howard, and I got to Howard. And I remember the moment that it hit me, though. It was being able to be, to embrace your culture. And I think it was, it was seeing professors like Dr. Carr, you know, who were so aware of, like, just the history of blackness, not just from an American perspective, but from a global perspective, you know, is being able to talk about it in that sense which is very, very important because one of the things I've always said that is the, the, the enemy is white supremacy, and white supremacy manifests itself differently, whether it's on the continent or outside of the continent. And within the continent, it was being colonized, you know what I'm saying? That's the way in which it manifested itself, you know? Here in America, it was it was slavery, and, and regardless of how you look at it, white supremacy is the enemy. And within the continent, there was always this plot to to separate the, the, the people, you know what I'm saying? Like back then, it was people who were cool with the colonizers and those who were not cool with them. So there was this whole distinction and this dichotomy that existed. In America, it was the sealed Negro versus the house Negro mentality and the dichotomy that existed in that sense. So wherever the white man went, where there was black people, there was always this plot to kind of put a, a division between black people, which is why it's so important to emphasize black unity. I didn't understand this until I went to Howard. <laughs> so and I remember that <laughs> moment. It was like, yeah, it was so crazy. And um, I, I this is a, this is funny though. Like, I, it, it was like every time because before going to Howard, I used to ride my bike past Howard every time, you know. And I was like, yo, there's so many beautiful women at this school. <laughs> <laughs> so, I can imagine. That was, Are you that kidding was me? another moment. That was another moment where I realized I made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, DC, DC is listen. Chocolate City finest. They have so many beautiful right. uh, melanated women, and just beautiful women of all hues, really. Uh, at Howard University. But before you get up out of here, Licious, I ask every uh, HBCU alumni and current student who's joined, you know, me for this HBCU of the Week segment about not only the HBCU experience, but this question. What uh-huh. is your response? What is your response, Licious, when you hear, and I'm sure you heard it, what do you respond to when you, or how do you respond to when you hear folks say that your HBCU experience doesn't matter? compared to your experience that you receive at a predominantly white institution, your education experience. Let me add a little more context. Like, it doesn't matter compared to, like, what you receive at a PWI. Like, is that, like, saying it's the same thing? So a lot of the conversations that I've been a part of, people have said that when you get, let's say, an engineering degree from Howard University, it doesn't hold the same weight if you get an engineering degree, let's say, from a Duke University, that your HBCU experience or your HBCU credential doesn't matter in corporate America or just in general society when people say that HBCUs don't matter. What has been your response to that if you have heard those type of conversations? 
Yeah, I have. I have. I mean, I, I had a I had a huge um, argument with a very dear colleague of mine who attended the PWI. And essentially, she was saying that um, there's, there's no difference between the PWI and the, and the HBCU. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. And two things. First yeah. of all, we, we have to be mindful of that kind of mentality, right, because that's the kind of mentality that says that white is better than black. That's just how I look mm-hmm. at it. When people say that, that's what it translates into. Again, for me, before Howard, I was the one who was saying, oh, it was Ivy League schools, Ivy League schools, Ivy League schools. You know, those are the schools I wanted to go to, right? But my experience and where I'm at right now and what I'm doing wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for HBCU. So we have to be mindful of that kind of mentality that says PWIs are, you know, the HBC degree doesn't matter. It's, it, it does matter. And it's not like the HBC degree, it's not less, it's not of a lesser value than the, let's be, let's make that clear. It's not of a lesser value. Like HBCU grads can compete at just about any level in the, anywhere in the world. That's the reality of it. Right, you get quality education. There's no difference. All right, and then the last thing to keep in mind too is the culture, and I want to emphasize that. I don't care what anybody says. You're never gonna get that H that same experience from a PWI. Like understanding, like being at Howard and just different aspects of black culture. You're never going to see that anywhere else. We talk about even if it's a Greek culture, you know, those types of things you're never going to have anywhere else. And even just pride in who you are. Because for a long time, if you know anything about American history, like for the longest time, black people were told that they weren't good enough. When James Brown said in 68 and 69, say it loud and black and I'm proud, it wasn't just a yeah. song. It was a, it was something that yep. was reflective of the times, because back then black people were told that they weren't good enough not to be proud of themselves or their skin or whatever it was in their hair. And when he put that song out, it was something that was a, it was really a, a, a proclamation, really a call to say, listen, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. I don't care what anybody says. I'm proud of my blackness. That is so important, because if you look at the history of black people all over the world. It's what was being told that we're not good enough, but everybody steals and takes from black people from the continent, however you want to look at it, but turns around and wants to make us feel like we're not good enough and we're not worth it. When you go to HBC, one of the things that you walk away with, without doubt, is this, this pride in who you are, in your culture. That's something that's so powerful, and that's something you're never, ever going to have anywhere else in the world. Anywhere else, if you go to PWI, even the best, you're not going to have that. And, and like I said, even for me, man, like I told you, like being Nigerian myself, like I didn't, I didn't even understand a lot of things about like so many different aspects of, um, of, of even in the African culture, like taking classes in, in, in like black, uh, black philosophy and, and religion and that sort of thing, and understanding those different aspects. I mean, you, I mean, of course, you, you, it was, it was that whole comprehensive kind of um, 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 curriculum that you were exposed to, you know. And I think it's, it's very important, very powerful. And, and I remember that was one thing I had. It was, I was proud. I was proud to be Nigerian. I was proud to be African. I was proud to be black, you know. And 
um, and being able to walk the campus sometimes in, in my in, in our traditional attire sometimes, you know, go to class with it. And, you know, it, it was just amazing. Or seeing my professors show up in a dashiki, like, you know, that was, it was it was it was neat, you know, to see that and this emphasis yeah. in, 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 in in blackness and, and embracing all of it. And I and, you know, that's that's something that I, I continue to push even today because sometimes, you know, in the real world it, it gets lost, you know, and then Black Panther came now and there was a different conversation that got brought to the table and a lot of times when I say it People say, well, Alicia, you're saying that because you're African, you know, because you're from Nigeria, whatever it is. And I'm like, I'm not saying that because I'm African or because I'm from Nigeria. That's not what it is. I'm saying that because it was a conversation that Black Panther really started in the industry. Like, being able to walk in and say that movies that have a predominantly black cast can do well overseas, that's something that Hollywood told us for the longest time wasn't possible. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and listen, I know you're a filmmaker, so I I know that's a passionate you know subject right. uh, for you because and and that's why I I don't have time for. It, but I certainly uh, listen, bro. You got to come back. Listen, you got to come back and not only talk about, uh, I mean, we've already talked about HBCUs or Howard University. You yeah. got to come back and tell us more about the things that you're doing. But real quick. Real quick, Lish, you got 30 seconds to tell our listeners how they can keep up with you on your social media page because you are a brother that's finessing the game. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, on all social media, at Real Name Licious. That's R-E-A-L, name, N-A-M-E, Licious, L-Y-S-I-O-U-S, all one word. Real Name Licious because people always ask me, is that your real name? So I'm like, well, that's my social media. Real name Licious. I had to check too. I had to check. I had to check too. Well, Licious, thank you so much for representing the real HU Howard University, my brother. And thank you so much for joining the podcast. And listen, come back even come back when you're ready, okay? Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, you're most definitely. You've been listening to another episode of Finesse Media Podcast Season 3. We'll be back with our guest, special feature guest for this episode, the first international vice president. Chris Ray, get ready, y'all. We'll be back. Let's make sure we get this business started. Welcome back to another episode of Finesse Media Podcast Season 3. I'm your host, Ken Finesse Media, and joining me on another episode, on another edition of the Finesse Media Podcast is another Finessa. So if you just joined the party and this is your first episode, we got a great Finesse on, joining the podcast for the first time, and also joining me for the first time as a co-host, my server, Dr. Katrina Sparks. What's going on, sis? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good evening. Hello to everyone. I'm super excited because we have an exciting show today. I'm so, so super excited. Yep. So get ready, get ready. So joining us for the first time on the Finesse Media Podcast, my friend, brother, the first vice president, uh, international first vice president of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated, make some noise and show some love for Chris Ray. What's going on, Doc? Welcome to the podcast. Oh, man. Thank you guys so much. I I thought I was just gonna get you tonight, but I got I got two of the blues, so you know I'm I'm excited. I'm, I appreciate this. This is gonna be fun. So thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely, uh, Doc. Uh, thank you for joining. Such a busy schedule, I'm sure you have. So to take the time out to speak with uh, me and Doc tonight on this special edition, and just like you say, this house is full of blue and white. So Sora. Uh, is in the building. But Chris, listen, I have been active with Phi Beta Sigma since 2007. I pledged at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. So shout out to the Beta Theta chapter. Uh, That's home for me. 
But Chris, tell us what's home for you, man, because you, you are the first vice uh, international president. But for people who don't know, tell us where your journey for Sigma started. Oh, man, my journey for Sigma started at East Carolina University, uh, Zynu chapter, uh, fall 96. Uh, the X-rated chapter is what we called ourselves back in the day. Of course, we don't use monikers no more, but if we, mm-hmm. if we could, we would have been, <laughs> if we could, in 2021. We Listen, I resisted you know, saying gangster beta theta to you, bro. Yeah, bro. <laughs> ah, there you go. Exactly, right? We don't do that no more. But if we could, uh, we would have been the X-rated chapters. I knew, uh, came through there, um, just an amazing group of men who, uh, I was a track and field guy, and uh, a lot of the guys on the track team were Sigma. And so going to track meets, hanging out with them, uh, them meeting other Sigmas at the time or other Zetas. And I was like, why is it every time we go to a track meet, these blue and white people keep on finding each other? And it just and I just realized, and I'm like, you just met him or you just met her. Where's this love coming from? And they, you know, they explained it to me. This was me as a freshman. And um, I was like, oh, I definitely need this. I definitely want to be a part of <laughs> Of this unit of this family and i um, mean on top of that you know these guys were just killing it on campus man they were always about the service they were very well known it was if you know you if you if you was on campus if you were anybody you were a sigma i mean that's just where that's the way it was in east carolina during that time period and so i was like i, I got to be a part of this no that's, that's super dope and amazing because uh, being a part of sigma uh at what year did you say you you were initiated all 1996. All 1996. I'm I'm popping in sixth grade, not knowing a thing about five minutes. <laughs> I, I see it all the time. And I doing. I didn't know anything, uh, Frank. I, right. I really thought it meant like OBE. I had no idea, um, you know, what it <laughs> my, meant. My grandma was, used to call it. Like my grandma called it QBE. She's like, baby, you got a package from QBE today. <laughs> but you're starting off. Um, you know, in the fraternity, were you at any level on the e-board on on, on the undergrad level? Uh, yeah, so uh, when I joined the fraternity, I immediately was signaled out by some of our more distinguished older brothers at the time who, you know, saw a little bit of me that I didn't see myself at the time. And, um, you know, they immediately put me to work, put me on the um, on the e-board for the state of North Carolina. And um, I was the associate secretary, which was the uh, collegiate position. Uh, then immediately I then became the associate uh regional uh associate regional director which is the collegiate position on the board Mm -hmm. i went to my first conclave uh in 99 and got elected international second vice president uh that was my first conclave first international position and it has just been trekking on after that that's what's up and you're definitely uh, trailblazing in um sigma and i wanted to ask you um in your social media, you speak. You spoke a lot about the late great uh, Congressman John Lewis, mm-hmm. and I know um, he was a mentor to you. Yes. And in mentoring, what did you learn from him? What um, personal? How has it impacted you? You know the legacy that he's left behind um, professionally and, and uh, personally. So great story about Congressman Lewis. I met him in 2003. Um, this was at the Memphis Conclave. I was assigned to him to be his um, his his aide during the time period that he was there. Uh, we were there. It was he was there for about a day, and I remember he said to me, "Young brother, <laughs> you're going to run for office one day, and when you do, I'll be there." And I was like, oh, "That's a great impression, brother. <laughs> That's a really great impression <laughs> when you hang around him long enough, right?" So yes. I, 
I, I said, I said, I said, sir, I am never going to run for public office ever. He said, you will. And when you do, I'll be there. <laughs> and lo and behold, you know, eight years later, I ended up running for mayor of my hometown. And, um, uh, but before I got to all of that, I, you know, I always stayed in touch with him. Uh, he communicated with me during my time period when I was in the military, uh, when I was deployed to Iraq, you know, he would, you know, write to me uh, when I came back and decided to get out of the military. My first job out of the military is working on Capitol Hill for him. And it was there that I really understood the depth of the kind of man that he was. Uh, the greatest lesson, the greatest lesson I learned from him was humility. Mm-hmm. Um, no, matter, no matter how many gifts we have, no matter how great we think we are, these gifts are not for us. Right. They are literally for the world. Um, and and what I loved about him was the prism in which he saw all of humanity. You know, it didn't matter your skin color. It didn't matter your gender. It didn't matter your sexual orientation. It was you were a human being. We have an obligation to make sure that you are protected and that you have the ability to live your God given potential. Mm-hmm. And I learned that from him. And so so I took that with me. Um, in my journey into public service, recognizing that I, I had a responsibility to make sure that I opened up the pathway for all people, no matter, um, you know, no matter their, their skin color, their gender, their sexual orientation, whatever their background was, as long as they were a human being doing the right thing, I had an obligation to make sure that I created a space for them to thrive. And oh yeah, by the way, I needed to make sure that I stayed humble in my journey um, because just as fast as we get there, we can fall. Um, and so he was just, he spoke to everyone. It didn't matter if it was the queen of England or the dude that was in the taxi cab. <laughs> you know, I remember walking across the street with him when we was going um, over to cast some votes in the, in the Congress and um, walking across the road uh, taxi drivers would just stop, blow the horn, and hang out the window. Mr. Lewis, and he would wave. The bus driver, the city bus driver, hung out the little window that they have, and would just, <laughs> yeah. you know, just waved at him. Um, when we went to Atlanta for the weekends, when he would go back to the district, couldn't get through the airport without him speaking to just about every single every vendor. Month. Just, he, just he was just an amazing human being, and um, and I. And those are just some of the lessons I took with me was the humility and understanding humanity. That's dope. And speaking of humanity, you mentioned it, alluded to it a little bit, but I certainly want to go back there and say thank you for your service or uh, as serving our country as a military vet uh, and also, you know, doing that because that's not easy at feet. My wife, as I said many times on this, on this platform, is a military vet, and I spent a couple of years on base at Fort Drum, and it was really my first encounter mm-hmm. of seeing yeah, for a drum, super mm. crazy cold up in Watertown, but it was there while I, I was really um, resonating with a lot of the soldiers and what they did for our country. So, again, thank you for your service. But you mentioned yeah. also, uh, Chris, about what he taught you to stay humble and to get into office. And he said, yeah, one day you will run. And you did. So that journey you took on in your hometown, Spring Lake, North Carolina, where you served as the mayor. So talk to us about that experience and some of the highlights, uh, you know, during your moment. Being oh my a gosh, first of all, it was, huge. It, was, it was amazing. It was, it was, it was, um, it was literally one of the most amazing journeys of my life. Um, uh, you know, you're humbled when people literally wake up in the morning 
go to the polls and um, and they're basically saying, we believe in you. We're about to put our trust in you. Uh, we know that it's a great responsibility, but you have asked for it. We believed what you said. Now go ahead on and get to work and make it happen. Um, and they did it not once, not twice, but they did it three times. And um, and it was just amazing. I learned so much about people. Uh, I learned so much about, of course, about government and and the challenges that we have and the opportunities that exist and how important it is to have the intellectual capital to address the issues of the day. Um, some people just run for office because they want to, you know, feel important and and go to the chicken dinners, like I like to say, and wait. <laughs> you know, they just want to just want their name to be called and they stand up and they wave. Uh, but there are serious issues that are impacting everyday communities, right? Whether they're small, uh, you know, um, whether you are in New York City, a pothole in New York City is the same <laughs> as a pothole in Spring Lake, North Carolina, yeah. you know, and you have to figure out how you're going to pay to fill that pothole. You know, you have to understand the, the challenges of the economy and how, you know, what resources are you going to use uh, to buy the resources you need to run the city and manage it to where, you know, taxes, are, you know, are not going to be raised, uh, or if you do have to raise it, why are you raising it for? And then how do you articulate that to your citizens? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and how do you communicate with them in such a way to let them know that, you know, this is for the betterment and growth of the organization, of, of, the, of the community? Uh, it, it's just, it's so many moving pieces, right? You're dealing with infrastructure, because when you're the mayor, you know, you're at the ground level of government, right? Yeah. Just every day, you know, the lady... My trash can got ran over by the yeah. trash truck mayor. I need to know the trash. I need another trash can. I need <laughs> you to get this over here. You know, you know, you go to the grocery store. It's like, I'm trying to hide out in aisle four, but it's like, mayor, you know what? You <laughs> know, my no to hide. You know the <laughs> no water pressure on our street, it's a hot mess. <laughs> What's going on? You know, so it's real. I, I mean, but you know, but I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Um, I love the ideas that I used to come up with and, and watching them come to fruition, right? You know, um, you know, hey, we got to, you know, and the thing about being at the local government level, it ain't sexy. There's nothing sexy about it, right? Yeah. I'm about paving roads, making <laughs> sure that the trash is being picked up, that the pipes in the ground, when they bust during uh, the winter season and getting them replaced, you know, I mean, it's just nothing sexy. The wastewater treatment plant, you talk about sewage, you know, you got to make sure the sewage ain't going to be backed up. And, you know, listen, all of these things, everything, about it. Yeah. everything about it, but it's so necessary. Um, and you got to have an understanding of that. Government is very sophisticated. And, um, and, uh, but I loved it. I loved every minute of it, man. I love the fact that, you know, I came up with, um, you know, one of the first laws I passed when I became mayor was ban the box which was if okay. you were a convicted felon, you know, we didn't ask you if you were a convicted felon when you initially applied for the job at our community, right, uh, at our town hall. You know, we waited until you got through the interview, um, they, and hopefully your, hopefully your credentials got you in front of someone, and then you were then able to then, and once we did the background check, if you were going to be the person we were going to select and you came up on, the, on, on, you know, something came up on your background, now you have an opportunity to sit in front of that human resource person and say, you know what, I was 18 when this happened, right? I'm 40 now. I haven't had any issues, mm-hmm. you know, before, you know, since then. Because what mm-hmm. we've had in our society is individuals who get deemed at the beginning because they checked that box. And uh, when I became mayor, only 32 cities in America 
um, had that initiative, and only one city in North Carolina did. By the time I, um, uh, we became the 33rd city in the nation to do that, and then what was amazing was other communities started reaching out to me and was like, hey, um, you know, Mayor, you know, could you send us a copy of that law, that ordinance? We want to do it wow. in our community. And so what ended up happening is, and I thought about this years later, that somebody in a community somewhere got hired because, you know, their, 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 their city decided to implement that initiative, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody had an opportunity to get a job, to pay their bills, to take care of their family, all because there was a guy in Spring Lake, North Carolina, that said, you know what, I want to make sure that I create an opportunity uh, for the people in my community. And so, you know, you start changing lives with, you know, you begin to change the lives of people that you don't even know the names of, right? So there's a man or a woman somewhere right now who's, who's working in local government, who got a job, who had a ding on their background back in the day, but they got a second chance and they're able to pay their bills and they're probably able to pay their child support so they can see their child, so that their child don't get upset and won't drop out of high school, so they won't stand on the street corner, so they won't sell drugs to make property values go down, you know, all because they got a job. And it's all connected. And, uh, and that's the beauty of, of public service. That's the beauty of getting involved because you, you have no idea the amount of lives you impact by just creating the right opportunities. And that's why I did it. Go ahead, Doc. I'm sorry. So I wanted to ask you, when I say the name Chris Ray, three adjectives that best describe you. <laughs> wow. Man. <laughs> A man yeah. of many talents already. I'm, I'm like, it can't be hard. Oh, man. Well, the, the, the first thing that's, gonna, that's absolutely going to pop out is going to be loyal. I am loyal. Um, I am loyal. You know, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, I'm dedicated in whatever opportunity that I get, and I'm passionate. Those are the three things. I'm loyal, I'm dedicated, and I'm passionate. Um, I, am, I am committed to making sure that when I close my eyes on this earth, I want them to be at my funeral, and I want them to say, whoo, he did that. <laughs> I mean, everything, everything that God has put in me, I want them to be like, he left it all on the field. Now, you know, we're fans of butts about it. I'm like, I want to be like exhausted, like, ugh. This is it, you know. Everything, every, every, every talent that he's given me, I want to use it for the good, you know. I just do. I, I really, really do, because I know at the end of the day, you can't take none of it with you. No matter how much money I make, no mm-hmm. matter how great of a life we live, we all going up out of here with nothing in our pocket. Amen. You know. So why not just? Why not? You know, in the words of John Lewis, you know, who you saw always say, um, our responsibility is to make you know, life better for someone in their little piece, you know, the little piece of real estate that we have on this earth, we have an, op- we have an obligation to just make it better. So you think about all of our ancestors who came before us. Here we are in 2021. We have the opportunity to be on this screen, um, you know, prayerfully that we got a little, a little change in the bank. You know, we ain't worrying about, you know, folks, you know, rapping at our door right now, mm-hmm. trying to drag us out and and string us up, right? You know, you know, even though there may be some places around the country that that yeah. may happen, but the reality is, is that there were so many that have come before us that have, you know, literally created the space for us to at least wake up, run to the store, and not fear for our lives. 
you know, in, 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 in you know, for the most part. Um, and so I just, and so because they did their part, we got to do our part for the folks that are coming after us that are not even born yet or too small to defend for themselves. Absolutely. You yeah. have to, you have to, uh, the good work that you're doing, uh, as our late great brother, John Lewis said, get in some good trouble, uh, and do good work. And my brother in the fraternity, you're continuing to do great work. So I was perusing through the internet one day and I said, wait, he's running for international president of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. So what's up? Is that true? Oh. Can we tell the people? Oh, it's very true. It's, it's very, very true. true. <laughs> there's, there's, <Yes>. no, <laughs> there's no secret. There's no secret. You can go to www.believe1914.com. That is uh, our campaign website. Um, that is my theme of my campaign, Believe. Um, I want in this in this next administration, in this next chapter of our fraternity, I want our brothers to believe in their power, believe in what we're capable of. You know, when 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 men come together, especially men of color, mm-hmm. you know, when we come together, there's literally nothing we cannot accomplish. Mm-hmm. You know, and I want us to believe in that power. Um, you know, people always ask me, you know, why did you join Phi Beta Sigma? You know, some people give these flowery responses or whatever the case may be but you know oh, they answer, never do that yeah yeah no. they give the, you know but man my response has been very consistent for the last 25 years and I said this when I first joined um I watched the men on my campus and I saw the impact that they were creating and I was like man look at what happens when when, when men come together like you know like like what are we you know we 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 can do this and uh and so the reason why I joined Sigma was because I believed in what we could do when we when we come together. I've seen Sigma men feed hundreds of thousands of people. I've seen them mentor thousands of boys. I've seen them help clean up after hurricanes and clean up communities. I've seen them, you know, go in and provide scholarships for, you know, for, for kids and sending them to school. I, you know, I've seen them, you know, step in when elderly people couldn't, you know, couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't fend for themselves, you know, cleaning up their yards, making sure they get their medication, whatever the case may be. I've seen them fight for legislation to make life better, you know, for folks that look like them. I, I mean, I want them to believe. And so, um, you know, my hope is, is that the brotherhood uh, will look at my, my, my record in this fraternity and the good work that I believe that we've done um, and give me the opportunity to serve as the, um, the highest, uh, in the highest office to continue to elevate our organization um, because we're going to do um, – you know, street cleanup is great, uh, but I, I expect us to own the street by the time my term is over with. That's the way I want us to yeah. be working. I want us to own clinics. Uh, we're getting ready to oversee a new project where we're getting ready to rebuild our international headquarters. But the difference between our headquarters is, is that um, four stories of the headquarters is going to be affordable housing. And so, wow. you know, so now, so Phi Beta Sigma now is going to be getting into the affordable housing uh, game. And so, um, so as a mayor, someone who has, who's very familiar with these types of projects, now imagine us having these same types of centers of excellence in our major urban areas around the country. You know, imagine being able to have, you know, Phi Beta Sigma at the table talking about affordable housing. Uh, and we have multiple affordable housing initiatives all over America. Mm-hmm. That's that's the future of our organization. Uh, uh, no more, you know. Yes, 
you know, creating scholarships and sending, you know, a thousand here, five thousand there is great. But imagine us literally sending people to school for four years. Yeah. You know, that's that's the way I want us to start thinking. You know, charter schools where you have sigmas and zetas as the teachers and the administrators. You know, clinics where you have sigmas and zetas as the nurses. You know, uh, we can literally create our own ecosystem as organizations yeah. um, if we start start thinking just a little bit differently. And so that's what I'm bringing to the table, um, you know, because picking up trash is not enough, not anymore. If we're going to pick up trash, then we need to be talking about environmental policy. You know, you know, we need to start talking about climate change as a community. On a global scale. Absolutely. On a global yeah. scale. Absolutely. You know, I think it needs to be at the table and that. So in, in the believe, and each letter represents something, the last E in the believe is environment, because I want us to start having those conversations so in this new administration that has just taken over yesterday, um, you know, the, the new the incoming secretary um, of the Environmental Protection Agency of the EPA is a, is a man of color, um, mm-hmm. someone who is very um, uh, focused on that. So imagine a partnership with that agency and us. Because why? Because this is a conversation that we're not having in our own communities. So let's be at the forefront of talking about climate change. Uh, and educating the next generation of Sigma. So, man, I'm I'm telling you, brother, it's a it's gonna be another game. It's a different game. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm I'm excited. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Doc. So, I wanted to know, as a member of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated, <laughs> how do you plan on pushing so, uh, Sigma forward internationally? This is a two-part question, and adding Zeta or including Zeta into your changes. Sure, sure. So, you know, of course, one of the beauties of being the international vice president now, you know, I'm I'm over, you know, international expansion, I'm over membership, uh, you know, and we've, you know, until, unfortunately, until COVID, uh, you know, we had just chartered our chapter in Ghana. Uh, yes. We got, you know, which we're very proud of and very excited about. Anyone who had an opportunity to see our um, our Founders Day yes. that, we, that we had, which, you know, I, that was, you know, you talk about Amazing. I was, I was, it was amazing. Dude, that you know, was it was amazing. That, let me tell you something. That was a labor of love, man. But, yes. you know, but that's, mm-hmm. but that's where we're going, right? Mm-hmm. That's where we're going. I mean, and I know that no one knew what we were up to, uh, but when we first laid it out, you know, they couldn't see it. But when it was all brought together, they man, were like, I heard some. I heard some sorority basilisk was calling the, the national headquarters. Like, wait, sir. who is your tech people? Sir, you need to all, know. Sir. They were all all on it. Yes. They, they, they were they were hitting us up quick. Like, uh, you know. But in that in the video when we did the announcement, uh, we had the brothers from around the globe that was giving their you know their shout outs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we recognized we highlighted like the brothers from Nigeria, right? So we we had a, a chapter in Nigeria that was charted many, many years ago. Um, and so now we have these brothers that we're recognizing. The chapter isn't back yet, but that was just a, a preview to the future, right? Um, you know, we, you know, we're very interested. Uh, there's some opportunities in uh, in the British Virgin Islands, Tortola. Yes. You know, we got some brothers down there that are interested now. We just reactivated our chapters in St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. And, you know, yes. Thomas just started gathering again. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at, you know, there's there's absolutely expansion that's getting ready to take place, and I'm excited about it. Um, you know, and, and it goes back to my my last statement. You know, I hope to, you know, to have, like, serious conversations with um, the Zeta leadership when, once I become national president to really talk about what, you know, you know, and I, I don't want us to just partner on 
Uh, you know, we do a little, you know, again, roadside cleanup together. and mm-hmm. No, no, no. I want the leadership of both organizations to sit down and say, where are we going to put a substantial amount of money in on a project that's going, you know, to begin to showcase the power of what this real this relationship could be, right? And I, I think that we don't leverage it as much as we could, even if it's just, you know, even if it's just, you know, looking at potentially bringing a clinic in a community somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's a project that we should get behind. How do we, how do we, how do we do that? How do we start, how do we start looking at ways, or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a grocery store in a food desert somewhere. Um, you know, how does Sigma Zeta come together? So those are the kind of projects that I want us to do on a national scale, not just the, mm-hmm. oh, we came together and we, mm-mm, mm-mm, we want to showcase, like we, we done bought something. We done put some mm-hmm. equity into something. And it's the, and it's the beginning of a partnership that's going to elevate the mindset of the rest of our, of our members at the next level. Maybe it's just, you know, putting together a, an event planning, um, you know, a, a multi-purpose, you know, you know, um, uh, uh, building somewhere where it's going to be rented out, you know, not only by Sigmas and Sailors, but by, by the community. We can have some revenue sharing. But what it is, it shows that, you know what, we put in a little bit, they put in a little bit, and now we're, you know, this is a way to show our economic power. You know, I don't have the answer to it yet, but that's the kind of conversations I want to have with Zeta um, in yeah. the future. Yeah, because I am an international, I am a Ghana Zeta, by the way, <laughs> recently. <laughs> So I'm so excited because there's definitely a need internationally. Yeah. And it's so funny because I speak to my sorors who are currently living overseas. And even mm-hmm. though our time zones are, uh, are really off, we're constantly talking to each other. What is the need? What's going on? I always want to be in the know of right. what's going on. I want to help here. But I find it is the, it, there is definitely a need oh, sure. overseas, especially in Ghana. There's so much that needs to be done. And we also um, reactivated our Liberia Zeta. Yep, absolutely. So it's yep. about, I'm just loving the idea that Zeta and Sigma and Zeta are about to take off internationally. Yeah. And we are doing it. We're the first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to do it. Yes, yes, yes. And I am loving that. And I hope other orgs take you know, take notice and start coming across and helping because there's, it's just, just a need. There's definitely a need. And I just can't wait because, you know, with COVID, it can only allow me to be as great as I could possibly be. But I'm ready to roll up my sleeves yeah. and get started and do the work of Zeta internationally. So I can't wait. And I'm going to speak it into fruition. When you take your leadership, I am there. Mm. That's what's up. And Chris, before you get up out of here, each and every week on the Finesse Media Podcast, I ask my finessers who joined the podcast, um, because you are someone definitely, I say, that's finessing the game, my brother. Um, But you made a quote and you said, I am the product of free and reduced lunch after school programs and amazing teachers. I am what a good public education looks like. And with that being said, and with that quote, who is that person that has finessed the game for you over these years of living? Oh man, jeez, golly! Oh man, you know, I, I, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of individuals, you know, that have touched me along the journey. But you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it back to, it, it, I'm gonna take it back to a family member. Um, uh, my grandmother. Um, my grandmother was the first finesser. You know, um, she's the one who put me on this path. Um, uh, first of all, allowing me to, first of all, she was the first person to believe in me. Right. And so 
she gave me that confidence. And so, you know, my grandmother raised me from when I was a child, from a, from one until I walked out of her house at 18 years old. And so, you know, as a kid growing up, you know, you have these flash moments where you're like, wow, I don't have my mom and my dad and, and I'm not like everybody else, you know, um, uh, you know, and you have those moments of doubts because you don't have that reassurance. But my grandmother understood that even as poor as we were growing up, she still found a way for me to, um, she understood that I needed to be an orchestra and found a way for me to, to play the viola. Mm-hmm. Um, she understood that I had to get up in church and get up in front of people and speak to find the confidence, you know, so I had to memorize my memory verses and, you know, or, or, or find ways for me, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to use these gifts because she saw the gifts and she did the best that she could to cultivate them. Um, and then there were all these other individuals along the journey, but, you know, um, uh, she's no longer with us, but I'm going to tell you the proudest moment I had was, um, was when I first got elected mayor, my first term, um, it was on her birthday, November 8th. That was election day. And so, of course, the, the, you know, that night, they, you know, she gave me this huge kiss on my cheek and, <laughs> um, uh, and the newspaper captured that. And that was what was on the front page of the newspaper uh, the next morning. Uh, but it was like, here was a woman who um, had an eighth grade education, um, you, know, had, you know, had eight kids. Um, I was basically her ninth. And um, some of us, some of the kids turned out great. Some didn't turn out so great or whatever. Uh, but my, my family grew up, you know, again, my family was from the, was, you know, was a, a rural family uh, in, the, in the islands. Uh, but here I have now taken my family from the back porches of drinking and smoking mm. uh, to the mayor's office. Mm. Because this one lady literally believed um, that, you know, that she may not have got it right with some of the eight but she was still doing the best that she could. And she got it right on this ninth one. And, and she got us, she got herself a mayor. And, um, and so, so you, when you think about how the trajectory of our family has changed from the woman who didn't have an eighth grade education to her grandson who has a law degree, who's the mayor of a city, man, I'm telling you, um, uh, it was because of her and her and, and her just finessing the game. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, so I love her. I miss her dearly but um but it you know the chris ray you see was because of that woman right there well we believe in you too chris we definitely believe in you and i'm going to be supporting you always too uh conclave my brother and when you become the international uh president i would love to have you back on the podcast to talk about it to celebrate uh with you and to have brothers to chime in as much as possible but the international current first vice president you are uh chris ray thank you so much for taking your time out uh to join this episode it, it's been a pleasure i know you're busy this background is hiding where you really are but i know you're busy and you're keeping it moving but <laughs> before you get up out of here people can also watch out and keep up what you're doing how let people know how they can follow you on your social media pages absolutely you can um hit me up on instagram at i am chris v ray and that ray is r-e-y i am chris v ray on on Instagram, on Twitter, I am Chris Ray uh, on Twitter. And, uh, of course, you can find I am Chris Ray on Facebook on my, yeah. on my, um, on my, on my uh, main page. So, yes, that's how you can find me. <laughs> that's what's up. The International First Vice President of Five Minute Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. Thank you so much for joining. And also with my co-host joining, Dr. Katrina Sparks, member of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated. Thank you so well. Before we get up out of here, let people Thank know how you. they can keep up with you. 
Me, um, you can find me on Facebook. I am at um, Katrina Sparks, which is on Facebook. And also you can find me on IG, Instagram. I'm at Doc, D-O-C, Cat, capital K-A-T, zero seven. That's what's up. And you've been listening to another episode of Finesse Media Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Finesse Media, and I'll see you next week with something brand new. Peace. Bye-bye.